0: Well, I pray that you will uh, tell someone who's been in the service or a family service member that you appreciate them, and uh, we appreciate those who've given. Do you need a uh, copy of today's lesson, Chris? Would you make sure I'm going? I will. I appreciate it. I missed one, and for those of you who listen, I apologize. I'm incompetent when it comes to that type of thing. <coughs> We're in Chapter 3, Lesson 8. And let me read again where we are. I'll do this real quickly. I want to spend a little time with this, talking about this concept of humility. And uh, it's a lost concept. It's not spoken of much anymore, un- unfortunately, but it is necessary, a condition of our heart. Uh, let me look at John the Baptist as he fades out of the scene. As he's come to do his work, he's done his work well. He's prepared the path for Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled God's call in his life. Jesus said there has not been a greater disciple born of women than John the Baptist, and one of his characteristics was his humility. Jesus said to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be a servant, and John the Baptist exemplified what it means to be a servant. Let's look at John 3.22. Uh, And I'll read this real quick, and then we're going to start chapter 4. I've got some 10 life lessons from chapter 4, a lengthy chapter, and good luck on doing that today. We'll get there. After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judah, and there He remained with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between John's disciples and the Jews about purification. came to John and said, But Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and everybody's coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves have borne me witness that I said, I'm not Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom the son, the son, he who loves the son, wow, he whom has God has sent, speak the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who doesn't believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. As we said last week, John the Baptist, the baptizer is baptizing his disciples. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing probably at the fork of the Jabbok and the Jordan River where there's a lot of water. And there arises a dispute amongst the disciples, John's disciples with the Jews, probably about ritual purification. Uh, They were very curious about why this phenomenon of of, uh, total submersion was going on. They perhaps wanted to understand John's purposes for baptism. And we talked about them being preparatory and external. And uh, so there arose a dispute, and as as MacArthur said, the dispute between John's disciples and the Jews showed what was in the hearts of John the Baptist's disciples. They were young. They were immature. They did not have complete revelation. John was a prepper, Was a preparer for Jesus, so they didn't have uh, uh, full revelation yet as to Jesus and His ministry and why He came, so they were young in faith. Uh, but, uh, so, but this teaches us some things about humility we talked about last week and true humility we talked about is, uh, is a broken, contrite heart. And humility in its definition, uh, is someone who has a contrite heart, someone who is dependent on God completely, who trusts in Christ alone, someone who is aware of his own heart 's depravity, someone who is uh, meek, someone who is uh, broken in spirit, someone is uh, humble in spirit, someone who mourns so a humble person is is the opposite of being proud he 's not puffed up, he understands that everything I have comes from God. And so everything I have has been given of God, and so nothing in me has earned anything. There's no work I could ever do. But a humble man is characterized by these things, and we talked about that last week. Now, the disciples of John display, and we talked about this last week, they displayed false humility. As MacArthur said, they thought it was a competition. They thought the, the most important thing was, how many followers do you have? They said, notice what they said. Hey, you've done this, you baptized Jesus, you've introduced Him, and His ministry is getting bigger than ours. And so they were competitive, and they were envious of Jesus' ministry, and they were jealous for John. They supported John. They followed John. They didn't understand Jesus' ministry yet, and so they were envious and jealous. And that caused strivings amongst the people, and there was a certain carnality to them. And so we talked about that last week. That was humility versus false humility. We talked about Paul's examples to the church at Corinth. We talked about Paul's examples to the church at Philippi. And we talked about Paul's instruction to Timothy as he was pastor at Ephesus. So we talked about humility and false humility uh, last week. And uh, if you'll give this to uh, Robbie down there on the end. Uh, so that was point one we talked about in the outline. Point two is where we are today. John one, point one, first humility, second. The second thing, John teaches uh, true humility by dying for Christ. This is not how I have it in the outline, but uh, you have it in the outline. If you want to add these things, you can. I don't like to go by outlines. But anyway, John displayed true humility, contriteness, dependence, trust to the point of his own death. And we see that in verse 24. It seems like just a little phrase, but it teaches us a lot about true humilities in result. It's total dependence on Christ, even it's being crucified with Christ. I know, I no longer live, but the life I lived, I lived by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see John the Baptizer showing true humility by dying for Christ in verse twenty-four. Look at that. It said, "For John had not yet been thrown unto, into prison." Now, who remembers the story? And the story is Matthew chapter. Without looking, I want to test your uh, your uh, reconnaissance here. Matthew fourteen, one through twelve. Why was? If you'll give this to Greg and Brenda, I will come get it. Beautiful. Why was John the Baptist thrown into prison, and how does that typify and define humility? And how did it ultimately lead to John the Baptizer's death? Who knows? Because he didn't approve of Herod and his wife, because he was well, they were adults. So John the Baptizers was bold, and he stood up for truth, and he was not afraid of his calling to be a preparer for Christ. As I have in the notes, it says, uh, John the Baptist was killed because he stood for Christ and his call to be holy. He was consistent with the message God had given him to flee from the wrath to come and to bear fruits worthy of repentance. He, like the humble Paul, was poured out as a drink offering and fought the fight and finished the race. John the Baptizer said, this is wrong. This is wicked. And he called him on it, and he was not afraid of the consequences for him calling out Herod. And in a drunken stupor, he made a silly comment, Herod, and he was tricked into beheading John the Baptizer. didn't really want to do it, but he was manipulated, and he did cut off John the Baptizer's head. But John the Baptizer proved humility and he died, he finished the race, and he finished the race, and he was poured out like a drink offering. Let's read what Paul said. This is the exact reason and way that Paul died. If you look at Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 7, just like John the baptizer demonstrated true humility, Just like Jesus Christ, the humble servant who came and He gave Himself as a sacrifice for sin, these three obviously demonstrated total dependence and trust and humble servanthoodness, if that's a word, as they demonstrated humility. John the Baptist and Paul the same way. Look at Paul, Uh, the last epistle he writes before he's killed. Second uh, Timothy 4, 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And look at this promise. And not only to me, but to those who love His appearing. So I want to encourage you to fight the good fight to finish the race, and look forward to the glorious future you and I have. It's going to get difficult. We're going to have to stand up. This week, just as evidence, and and this is the University Baptist Church in Waco, a part of the Baylor system. Sorry, Greg and Brenda. They (laughs) renounced the faith. They now are, ba- are marrying gay couples. They did that along with the Lakeshore Baptist Church in, in Waco, along with Wilshire and Dallas. This is what's going to happen. And the thing that saddened me, they said, we've been praying about this for months. You do not have to pray about something when God says it's wrong. <coughs> Why waste your time? You're not going to change His heart or His will. He said it's wrong. You don't have to pray about it. Well, you look, when we were at Baylor, the, the view of the Word of God was weakening so much yeah. that where else are you going to go? You're going to make it up. And that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Yes. The yes. Yes. Um, yes. So, guys, it's every day something, new cancer springs up. And so for us to be truly humble servants following Christ, it's easy to say here, oh, I'll stand up for truth, I'll be bold. But will I? We pray grace to deal with these things. John the baptizer died for Christ. He was bold. He stood up for the faith. He didn't... He didn't, he didn't put up his finger and measure the culture and say, well, maybe God is changing his mind about this. We gotta stand. It separates family. It separates friends. But we gotta do it. We do God a disservice. We do ourselves it. And we do the people that we're condoning a disservice to. So we do it in love. And I'll get into a minute about uh, I don't want to condemn anybody. Well, we'll talk about that in a second as we get to this, uh, scripture. So we see that, John the Baptizer, as he demonstrates true humility. Uh, uh, first, pardon me? Sorry, would you tell me again where you're reading? What Timothy, what? Uh, I, that verse was 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. As I, as I, and I did, like Paul, we did 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. Now the third reason thing we see about John the Baptizer's humility, chapter three, and we're going to see this, uh, and I love this. John, verse twenty seven: A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John understood his calling. John understood his gifting. John understood his privilege to prepare the way of the Lord. And John was content with his lot and his calling in life. It says, uh, Calvin, I love what he says. He says, As John lovingly rebukes his disciples for this competitive false humility that entailed the envy and the jealousies and the strivings, John the baptizer said, and I'll quote this from Calvin, it says, It is not in man's power, it is not in my power to make me great, but the measure of us all is to be what God intends us to be. So, humility says, I'm content gifting of being a teacher. You be you be content with your gifting as helps, or your gifting as an evangelizer, or your gifting as whatever it is. And don't be, I wish I was this, or I wish I was a pastor, or I wish I was Charles Spurgeon, or I wish I was Billy Graham. You are who you are by the grace of God. Put in the body for a specific reason, and your task, your gift is is not anywhere inferior to anybody else's gift. But you be faithful and content with giftings. So I'll just put this on the board. Content with the giftings. We all have a circle of influence. We all have a circle of influence. Concentric circle, is called. And we are responsible to be faithful where we're planted. Okay? John the baptizer said... Guys, this isn't a competition. We shouldn't be this way. Be content with where you are. God has put you where you are. If you believe He's sovereign, you're here for a reason. And you are ultimately responsible to God for what you do with His abilities He's given you. Okay? If He didn't gift you with teaching, you're not responsible if you're not a teacher. Okay? You should teach, but maybe not in a in a public setting. So. Just because you don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean you're not responsible for sharing the gospel. But uh, be content with your giftings, part of humility. And be faithful to the giftings that God has given you. Okay, everybody understand that? Uh, we should be satisfied with the rank. The, this restricts our false humility. It restrains our foolish ambition with its envies and strivings. And you see these verses, First Corinthians four. The church is saying, "I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm this. I'm that." First Corinthians four in the in the notes says, "What have you been given?" What do you have that you haven't been given? Humility says, I know who I am and I know that anything I have is grace gifting. Okay, everybody understand that? True humility understands that. And of course, these verses in Philippians re- re- point to the ultimate example of a humble person and that's Jesus Christ as he sacrificed himself. So we understand that. Look at, I love this verse. John the Baptist is so humble that he doesn't even consider himself anything but this. Look what he says. All I am is a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. I'm not the bridegroom. I am the best man. I have been called to help unite the bride and the bridegroom. And he says, that's my joy, that I have done what God has called me to do, and I have seen Christ the bridegroom come, and I see His work in bringing the bride, the church together, and he says, I'm content with that. So he says, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, he said, I rejoice to hear the bridegroom's voice. And he said, my joy is fulfilled. We need to get, be the, get there. Humility. He increases, we did decrease. It don't matter how big of a following you have. It don't matter about how big of a church you have. It doesn't matter these things. It's faithfulness to Him. And you rejoice that Christ... The bridegroom is exalted, okay? There's no room for man to be exalted, but it's all about Jesus Christ. John the baptizer defined that and understood that, and he was so humble, he said, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. I've had a little part in bringing the bridegroom and the bride together, and my joy, and I'm content internally about that. And I'm so content internally that I am ready to give up my life for this bridegroom whom I've came to prepare for. Everybody understand that? Uh, many verses about that, about, uh, the church, uh, uh, these things. Uh, for time's sake, I'm gonna let you read these verses, uh, but, uh, just understand humility is contentment in Christ, pointing people to Christ, and just being able to participate in Christ's work here on earth. We should be content that we are ministers of reconciliation and we are ambassadors. We represent Him, right? And so John the baptizer understood that and was content with that. Uh, And then the last thing that he does, uh, not not the second to last thing, what he does is after he says Christ must increase... And I must decrease. So what he does is, is John the baptizer exalts Christ. Exalts. Exalts Christ. And he does this in this beautiful way and he uses five different... Uh, terms and expressions to exalt Christ, to give evidence that He really understands humility and His lot in life. He exalts Him and He gives five different ways that He exalts Christ. He says He must increase, I must decrease. And the first thing He says is Christ has a heavenly origin. Christ is from heaven. He says, I am from the earth... I speak earthly things, but him, him whom I represent and prepare the way for, Christ is from heaven. And he came down to earth and he will go back to heaven. But Christ is from heaven. And so that dovetails with what he said in the prologue. Remember John chapter one, uh, and we see, and we see that in verse, uh, uh, what verses? One, uh, one, one, In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. We talked about that. And in one, fourteen, and Jesus became flesh, and Jesus dwelt among us, and we beheld Jesus' glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He was full of grace, and He was full of truth. So Jesus is, of heaven. And then we see that in 313. Uh, We discussed this three or four weeks, two weeks ago, I think, but it says, no one has ascended to heaven, but He who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So we see that He was in heaven, He came to earth, and He will go to heaven. Just another verse that I came across, and I apologize that I didn't see it before, Would have helped us is we had a lively discussion about uh, 12 and 13. Look at Ephesians 4, just about His giving gift section. This is a further explanation that Jesus is from heaven, and that's why he is superior to John the Baptizer, and he's superior to all of us. If you look at these gifts that he gives, look at a 4, 7 Ephesians. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of whose gifts? Christ's gifts. Therefore, He said, He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now this, He ascended. What does it mean that He first descended... And to the lower parts of the earth, He who descended is the one Jesus who ascended far above the heavens that He might fulfill all things. So we see that in four nine to give further credence to the fact that Jesus is from heaven and so He is to be exalted. I'm to decrease, but He is to increase, defining true humility. Second thing. I love this. He says, not only is He from heaven, He comes, verse 31, He who comes from heaven is above all, but He who is of the earth that speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what He has seen, verse 32, what He has seen and heard, that He testifies. So not only is He from heaven, but He sees and He hears and He testifies... what He has been with in the bosom of the Father from eternity past, the Father. We exalt Christ because of His place as the Son, and where, what He has seen, what He's heard, and what He testifies that He's been given from His Father. And we see that in many verses. <coughs> Quickly, let's look at 5.19 of John. This concept that Jesus tells the truth, He is the truth, because of where he's came from and who He is. He knew the truth by first-hand experience. Look at 519. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself done. So remember we said that Jesus dwells among men and we literally said Jesus exegetes who the Father is. Jesus describes in full intimate detail and defines who the Father is. He is the express image of the Godhead bodily. So Jesus in His life as a man, the invisible God we can't see, He expresses who God is as a man. So what He sees, what He hears, what He testifies of the Father, that is another reason why He is exalted and we are not. Uh, We see that also, if you want to look, uh, I will get to this eventually, John 8, 25 and 26. uh, Jesus again saying, they've asked Him who He is, and Jesus said, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Again, in his humility, gives all glory to the Father as a man. Uh, so, further reason to exalt Christ. Everybody got that one? I love this verse 33. Similar, I won't spend a lot of time on this. He who has received his testimony, has certified that God is true. There's an agreement with witnesses. When we get to chapter 5, about the fourfold witness, starting in verse 31, I will more carefully explain this. But just as in a court of law, you need two or three witnesses, we see Christ is the witness of His Father. We see the witness of the Holy Spirit. We see the witness of the Word. And so we see the manifold witness, and we see from the law. So we'll talk about that in great detail. <coughs> but we see that. A reason John the Baptizer exalts uh, Jesus. Now verse 34. Tricky, tricky verse. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure capitalized spirit. So Jesus is exalted because he is, how would we phrase this? The spirit indwells fully without reservation. So we see this that Jesus is filled beyond measure with nothing lacking of the spirit. Verse 34. The reason why we exalt Christ is because Christ is completely filled with the Spirit beyond measure. Any comments or questions about that verse? I thought that verse may raise some question marks. What does it mean that Jesus, uh, Jesus has not been given the Spirit by measure? He has not been in any way, there's nothing of the Spirit that's not indwelling and filling Him. How do we understand that verse? And how is that different from, from us, the church? Any thoughts? Uh, Don, I was reading the other day, this may have something similar to do with that. Romans 12.3 Okay. It talks about through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself, but think is to have sound judgment, which I think interprets there is a degree of gifting, a degree of grace and. Maybe it's comparing that that there is no degree in the Spirit Okay. That's very good. One has a note that just says, without limits. ahead, mm-hmm. the Spirit to the Son without limits. And we see what are some of the characteristics of this complete filling of the Spirit in Jesus throughout the Scripture. We see that in many verses... Uh, Just look at these and just just want you to chew on these verses. Uh, I don't have these verses in your notes, do I? Isaiah 11.2. And I'll write these on the board. Look at Isaiah 11.2. An example that Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit. There is no limitations to the Spirit that is within Christ. And we see some of the characteristics, that is characteristics of Christ as the Spirit Uh, So we're going to look at these. And let's look at Isaiah 11.2. And we can say, as Gene echoed, all of us have portions of this within us, but not without limit. And there are limitations within us because of the depravity of our flesh. We've not yet been glorified. But look at Christ. 11.2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom, counsel, counsel, might, knowledge... Fear of the Lord. Now we all have some knowledge, we all have some wisdom, but that wisdom is limited, right? It was not limited in Christ to the, in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So He is all wise, He is all knowledgeable, He is all might and strong and able to counsel. We have portions of this within us, but He is literally filled with no, uh, Nothing lacking. Look at 42.1. If you continue to look at this promise of the Messiah as He comes, uh, we see again uh, 42.1 of Isaiah. Speaking of Christ, this is uh, the first servant song. Behold my servant... Father, speaking of His Son, Jesus, my elect one in whom I delight in, my soul delights in. I have put my Spirit upon Him, and He will bring justice to the Gentiles. He'll not cry out, nor raise His voice, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break. A smoking flax He will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, and He will not fail or be discouraged Till he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. And then it uh, uh, you can just keep on reading about his righteousness, about his uh, uh, power. So we see that this is a demonstration of the fullness of the spirit that is in Jesus. Uh, if you look also at uh, sixty-one-one in Isaiah, uh, just some ideas what this means that. Uh, the Spirit is without measure within Christ. That's why we exalt Him. Sixty-one-one, another uh, great prophetic word. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has appointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Remember, He closed the book when He did that in, uh, in Luke. The reason why He came was the Spirit had... Uh, this is His tasking, the reason why He came. And then He shut the book up. That's His first advent. He didn't, he didn't talk about uh, to proclaim the vengeance of the Lord. That was His second advent. So that's why He came the first time as the Spirit led Him. And so we see that in 61. Any other comments about the Spirit without measure within Christ? Any other comments that would help us... Uh, to understand this. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we, He was given this Spirit uh, completely filled. And we just read in Ephesians 4, He gave gifts to men that were a fruit of the Spirit within Him. Okay? So He gives gifts to His body because He is filled with the Spirit. Any comments about that one? Then lastly, uh, the last reason why we exalt Christ is because uh, of His status. And let's look again at that in John, uh, back to where I was, John chapter 3. And we see that in verse, uh, uh, "...the Father loves the Son, and He's given all things unto His hand." So He is loved by the Father, and the Father has uniquely gifted Him to carry out His role as fully God, fully man. And He will not be discouraged. He will not fail." And we're going to get into this later. Every sheep that the Father has given the Son to save will be saved. And none of the sheep will be lost. He's going to seek and save His sheep. And we're going to talk about these great truths. But everything the Father has has been given to the Son. And the Son accomplishes perfectly everything that His Father has given Him to do. Comments or questions? Jesus was supreme because the Father granted Him that status. And we're going to see Jesus, after His work is accomplished, after His salvation is accomplished, after He rules and reigns on the earth, He then gives it back to the Father as an act of obedience. And it's just a beautiful picture. But we see that He gives it back to the Father. And so that's in Philippians 2, 9 and 11. So comments or questions about humility? Anything you want to add or take from this? or? uh uh, John the Baptizer fades from the scene. He soon is uh, killed for the faith. And uh, there hasn't been a greater prophet since John the Baptist because of his humility and large role. Anybody understand that? Now, we look at this great story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a, uh, is a type and is also a literal. So let's look at If you got chapter uh, 9 notes, we're going to be in John 4. And one thing you have to understand uh, about this verse, it's going to dovetail with a famous parable in Luke. And what does it dovetail with? What's the parable? The The Good Samaritan. Both of these, we have to know what a samaritan is so we can grasp this remember that all of this book is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and believing in his in his name you may have life and have it abundantly right so the whole purpose of this so this this chapter is evangelistic this this speaks of the deity. The 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 verse that is the the uh topic verse the most important verse in this chapter is verse twenty six he says I who speak to you am he there's a many I've heard liberals say Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh-huh Yea, he did. Jesus says I am he. I am the anointed one I am the Christ I'm the one that fulfills all the prophets I'm He. So this chapter, if you don't get anything out of this chapter, which if you don't, I'm going to be very disappointed in me, He's the Messiah. Remember what uh, Lewis said, He's either a liar, a lunatic, or He is who He said He was. He says, verse 26, I who speak to you am He. The woman at the well said, we're looking for the Messiah. He said, I'm Him. I'm God. I'm the remedy. I'm the gift. I'm the grace gift that God gave to save men. He is the Messiah. You must believe that He is the Messiah, and you must put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone. Okay? So He's the Messiah. But the Samaritan woman, the, the whole history of the Samaritans is fascinating to me, and uh, I understand that it may not be fascinating to you. So I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to try to be sensitive to the fact that it may not be so exciting to you. Samaritans. I don't want to be guilty of uh, whatever. Here we go. Samaritans. History lesson. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Who was second? David. David. David united the two kingdoms. So both kingdoms, this northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. The southern kingdom had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. David the king united both tribes. All the twelve tribes of Israel were united under David for 33 years. He was king of Judah The southern kingdom for seven. Then he became king of all Israel for 33 years. And then his son was whom? Solomon. His Solomon ruled and reigned over the most prosperous, glorious time in Israel's history. And his son Solomon reigned for 40 years. And his son reigned over both tribes, all 12 tribes, both branches, northern and southern kingdom. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Yet Solomon had a had a gross sin, and it ruined him, and it ruined many after him. And what was Solomon's great sin? He loved foreign women, and he loved pagan women. He loved women. And he had a bunch of them, and you know all the story. But because of Solomon's sin and his departing from the faith, there was horrible consequence. And out of Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was his son. Rehoboam was a rebellious son. And there, God it says God raised up an adversary for Rehoboam, and he raised up Jeroboam, and you can read about these guys, these guys, these two individuals in kings. but uh, uh, First Kings 12, and that is going to discuss the rebellion and the separation. Jeroboam says, we're not going to have any part in Solomon and David, and so the ten tribes follow Jeroboam. So these are the northern kingdom, and these this is the northern kingdom, and this is where the Samaritans come from. They come from the northern kingdom, the most prolific and numerous, and uh, these come from the northern kingdom. Okay, so this comes from the split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. It is fascinating that there's not one single godly king in the northern kingdom. And we know that they are captured in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And we know from history that the Assyrians deported the Jews to Assyria. And they also brought in foreigners to northern Israel and the when the result of that that you had mixed marriages which were forbidden, and we had intermarriage and we had pagan culture was mixed in between the Jewish law and all of the foreigners who came in. So we know that's what happened. And so Samaria, Samaria is the Samaritans are named after Samaria, which King Amri built, who was a wicked king that followed after Jeroboam, and so they're called Samaritans. And uh, so King Amri built Samaria, and they're called Samaritans. So you know the history. That's who we're talking about here. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Okay? They hated them. They wouldn't talk to them. They would go out of the way to go around them. They despised them because in their arrogance, the Samaritans were a mixed breed of mongrels. And they were a mixed race. They weren't pure. They didn't do the rituals that the Jews... And you can't read a word I've written up there. <laughs> it looks good when you're up here, but uh, so everybody understand who the Samaritans are? Generally... The Jews would go out of their way to avoid this northern part of Israel, north of Jerusalem, up to the Assyrian Golan Heights area. If you know anything about modern day Israel, they considered them mongrels and they hated them because they were half-breeds and they had, they had, they had alienated from the pure faith of the Jewish. Uh, the thing about these guys is they believed only And the Pentateuch, they believed only in the first five books of the Scripture. They did not listen to, or nor did they adhere to, Joshua through Malachi. Didn't listen, didn't believe, didn't believe it was of God. They only thought about the Pentateuch. And so what they did, and all these are in your notes, and all these verses are in your notes, so what they did, because they only read the Pentateuch, they believe that worship should be on Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem. They believed that Abraham worshipped on Mount Gerizim. I'm going to let you read that for yourself. And so they had heartburn. They wouldn't worship at Jerusalem. They believed that they were to worship at Mount Gerizim. They didn't read where Dan, David said Jerusalem is going to be built for you. That's where you're going to be present. That's where you're going to dwell. The Samaritans didn't go along with that because they only believed the first five books. That's all in your notes. Real quickly, that's who we're dealing with. That's who this Samaritan woman is. That's who the Samaritan was that the priests and the Levites and the holy people, the Jews, avoided and wouldn't pick him up when he was destitute on the street. Alright? So we know who these folks are. So here's the background as we come into this. And we're going to look at life lessons. I'm not going to exegete each verse because... Uh, uh, i 'm not capable, but I, I think in order to I want you to understand the meaning of this, everybody understand who the Samaritans are and so you can imagine Jesus coming to this people group. why? Because he is evangelistic, because he is the Messiah, because he came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to heal those he 's the great physician. And he's going to teach us many things from this chapter that's going to help us uh, as we get into this. So we ready for this? As as uh, Keith would say, seatbelts buckled, as we parachute into this. Oh my goodness! Does he say that? See, I've 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 uh, aspired to uh, osmosis. I've learned some things. Chapter four. And I'm just gonna get, uh, I don't know how far I get. We'll go. Let's, let's read, uh, let's read, uh, through 15. Just to be, just for grins. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize anybody but his disciples did it, he left Judah, departed again to Galilee. Love this verse, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to son Joseph. Uh, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it's twelve o'clock noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it you, being a Jew, remember the background we just talked about, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The water's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who gave us this well, who drank from the well himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks of this water is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I shall give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So we see some life lessons. The first one is difficult. is hard to see, but I think very important. And I appreciate uh, Calvin and McCart. I hope you have this. If not too late, we see this first lesson, life lessons from this chapter, and it's found in the first three voices, verses. And so we got this uh, life lessons, and uh, from this chapter, and then we call it as ten life lessons, just to make it easy. We gonna have this theory, uh, we're gonna have this concept: avoid unnecessary conflict. MacArthur and his commentator say, commentator, his commentary, verse 1 through 3 said that when John, when Jesus knew that there was going to be some hostility between John the baptizer's disciples and his disciples, Jesus didn't want there to be conflict. He had much to do in his ministry. He had places to go, people to see. So he avoided unnecessary conflict. So he said, Let's pull up stakes. I've got to go to Samaria. And the point of this is very important to understand. And the reason I have this word here is because it's important. Unnecessary conflict. And I have in the notes that the Christian life is a life of balance. Those of you who know me know my favorite word or concept is balance. And 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 this means that we are to... To be bold, we are not to compromise ever one infinitesimal point on principal primary precepts. And we are to be wise on secondary precepts and know when to stand, when to fight, and when to avoid unnecessary conflict. Right? Jesus taught us that instead of getting into the minutia of this Argument between the two. His principal motivation is to spread his gospel to lost folks. And so he avoided unnecessary conflict. And I've got the quote there from MacArthur, balance. But we must be bold on primary points, no compromise, no flinching, and have the wisdom to know if we're conflicted with a fellow believer, when to punt If it's a secondary issue, what are some primary, principled, no compromising principles that we must never shrink away from or compromise on? And there are hundreds. But just give me five that come to your mind. Jesus. Foundation, so we got that's Jesus, right? We cannot ever compromise that He's the only way, the only hope. We must never compromise on that principled truth. We must never uh, allow Him to be deglorified. We must never allow Him not to be the only way. We must never allow work salvation or anything to creep into our conversation. So, un- we cannot avoid that conflict if it comes up. What else? Salvation by faith? Yes. Can't compromise on that? And Carolyn, you said? Did you have one? I was... That's what I was... Okay. We can't compromise that? The Word of God. if you compromise on that, as Brenda said before she left, you lose everything. Cannot compromise the inspiration, the validity... The, the truth of God's Word. Never. We see the consequences within every denomination that exists today is because of this compromise right here. And we become open-minded. Sorry to knock the Methodist there, but that is, a, that is an evidence within the Baptist. Same thing. We cannot compromise this truth. The culture today is largely because we are silent on this standard issue. Yeah, has God said? Has God said? Yes, He has. Does the culture said this? God said that. What else? There's many, many, many. Pardon me. Sin. Consequences. Death. Need of a salvation. No compromise. What else? I know you guys know, but it's hard on the spot. To think of something. Cannot compromise on the reality, which is sin and consequence, but we can't compromise, uh, uh. That's gonna be under secondary issue. It's, it's, well, well, creation, yes. How it was created, secondary. Who created, yes. Cannot be compromised, but how was it an interval? Was it the was it a new earth? Is it an old earth? I, can you compromise on that? I, I, I'll leave that to you. But uh, uh, sufficiency—that's sufficiency, up here. Sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, one God. One God. We differ from the Muslims in the fact that they believe there's one God and they believe that Jesus Christ is not his son. That is not something we can compromise on because it is not, we're not talking about the same deity. Jesus. We're not cousins. We're not relations. We're not. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Is the only one. The only, only salvation. Yeah. Hell, Hell is, uh, I would put that here, but. Truths we cannot compromise on, we can't avoid conflict with. Now, what are some uh, things that we can be wise, maybe secondary issues that we need to avoid unnecessary conflict that we can disagree to disagree, uh, ecclesi- uh, end times, uh, some believe this way, some believe that way, some are dispensational, some are covenantal, some believe a rapture, some believe there isn't. That is not a primary, uh, thing that we can, we can avoid this conflict. It doesn't do any good. It just causes hard times, right Dan? It's a secondary issue. Uh, let's be wise about it. What else? Are there many of these over here? I think as a Bible-believing church, we may not have many over here, but there are some. And you need to be wise about it. What do you think? Can you think of some secondary issues? Uh, Maybe uh, uh, some of the uh, charismatic gifts, we can differ on that uh, as brothers in Christ. Uh, you're not a pagan if you believe uh, a certain way about giftings perhaps, and some of us who are more conservative may believe that some of these giftings have been done away with. That's not a primary, secondary, heaven or hell issue. Anything else that you want to write up here? Pardon me? Yeah, they, so, we, so we talk about... Uh, uh, I 'll just call this man-centered salvation uh, and god-centered. Uh, there are great, fantastic believers in Christ that are more man-centered, and there are more there are some that are God-centered, uh, whether baptism. baptism. Whether you can submerge, whether it can be an infant baptism, maybe secondary. There are a lot of Christian Lutherans, a lot of Christians, but we have to understand that there is no regeneration in baptism. I think we have to. I think we have to argue that point, right? Baptism, the water doesn't save. It's not part of the process. Right. We so have to. Almost go under the. Yeah, it could. And yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, so baptism. right baptism we'll talk about yeah so just some ideas uh, think of others uh, you may have a conversation with your family uh, about uh, anything but life lessons avoid unnecessary conflict don't compromise, compromise the principles uh, but uh, be wise about the secondary issues then uh, I want to get this point too before I before I shut up, and I and I'll, and I'll end on this one. Uh, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Jesus needed. Uh, my uh, there's a mind says must mm-hmm. had to. That demonstrates his compassion for lost people to reach this people group that was despised. He came to seek and save lost people. Uh, it is not the condition of the... He came to seek and save lost folks. So he needed, he must go to Samaria. So he was willing to be ostracized by other Jews. He was willing to... Uh, to take a longer trip. He was, he was willing to do what he needed to do because he had a divine appointment with that Samaritan woman. And his meeting with that Samaritan woman brought salvation to those within that Samaritan woman's group. And we'll talk about that uh, in a second. But from the notes, it says, The verb emphasizes Jesus' commitment to fulfilling His Father's plan, which we're going to talk about in great detail next week. Jesus had a divine spiritual appointment with this woman. And then for us, life lesson for us, we must go to people who we would not normally go to. Jesus came to save sinners and seek lost people. We don't get to decide who we go witness to. We don't avoid the sinners, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the homosexuals. We don't avoid those who we look down our haughty nose at, okay, the adulterers, those who live in sin. We don't avoid those folks because those folks make us uncomfortable, okay? Okay? but we share with them the hope of Christ. In love, we go to them. So as Jesus went to a despised people group, that teaches us we are to go to whomever we come in contact with, speaking the truth of Christ in love to them. Does everybody understand that principle? And I'll get into it. I'll look at these verses next week. But uh, comments, questions, and I'm going to shut her down right here.